Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's Physics Buzz podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. Last Thursday was one of my favorite days of the year, the annual announcement of the Ig Nobel Prizes, awarded to research that makes you laugh, then makes you think. It's science that might sound silly at first, but when you think about it, there's something to it. Take, for example, Ruslan Krechnikov. He won the Fluid Dynamics Prize for researching why coffee spills over the lip of a cup when you walk down the hall. So, in general, this problem uh, is a sort of a confluence of several subjects, namely fluid dynamics, dynamical systems, uh, biomechanics, and uh, behavioral uh, dynamics. What is it you found? Why is it we spell? The frequency of oscillations of uh, coffee is the same as the step frequency. Well, not the same, but very close, so that we pick up those excitations. Basically, the momentum of your step causes your brew to slosh forward, and then back again like a pendulum. By the time it sloshes forward again, you've taken another step, adding more forward momentum to the surging liquid. The process keeps repeating itself, and the waves in the cup keep getting bigger and bigger, until they crest over the lip of the cup and spill onto your shirt. And uh, we studied the standard cup, uh, coffee cup, like American coffee cup. Uh, espresso coffee cups are smaller, and actually in this case it's even worse, because natural frequency of oscillations is much closer to step frequency for the espresso cup. So it's more likely that you'll spill your coffee with an espresso cup. Right. Watching coffee slosh around a cup actually helps build some of the fundamentals of the more complex systems Kreshnikov studies, like turbulence forming around an aircraft. So it's a very difficult problem to control, and therefore we need to understand the physics behind it and also to develop theoretical foundation. And working with coffee is just one of the examples of such kind of systems. Often, the key to solving a complex problem is to understand its constituent parts. That's the approach that Raymond Goldstein, Patrick Warren, and Robin Ball took to win their part of this year's physics prize. So uh, Patrick and Robin and I uh, together solved this um, very important problem, which was to understand the shape of a ponytail. Uh, So basically, we we set ourselves the task of trying to understand the balance between the elasticity of filaments, their weight, and the curvatures, the random curliness that gives the volume to hair. And we put all this together in a theory that gave rise to an equation, which we call the ponytail shape equation, that actually describes the envelope of a ponytail uh, as the solution to a differential equation. Plug in a few key properties of your coif into their equation, and it'll tell you the shape of your ponytail. Hair has a characteristic uh, uh, stiffness and mass per unit length, which, together with gravity, define a length scale over which gravity will bend them. And basically, it's about two inches. So if hair is shorter than that, it's basically stiff and insensitive to gravity. If it's longer, it will bend. And the ratio of the actual length of the hair to that length, we call the Rapunzel number. So a large Rapunzel number, long hair, means gravity has a big effect, and a short Rapunzel number means it's instead the shape is a consequence of the curvatures pushing outward and the elasticity of the filament resisting that. As Professor Ball explains, the research really isn't all that harebrained. Physics is all about understanding real-world phenomena from as small a set of fundamental principles as possible. Uh, our understanding of the bending of a hair fibre is just the same as our understanding of the, the elastic bending of beams in civil engineering. You might not think of a great big concrete beam as this, behaving the same way as a hair in your head, but they are. Uh, and also how we understand the, the, how the whole crowd of hair fibres influences any one given one. And there uh, we've used fundamentally the same understanding as we, we used to understand polymeric materials. Uh, anything from uh, crude oil to gels, elastomers, um, and magic putty. 
So in a lot of ways, strands of hair act like a model for these things on a molecular level. At the same time, hair has its own unique, fascinating properties. Polymers are, are, are very disordered strands, molecular strands, and physicists polymer physicists have long been intrigued on the sidelines about how hair is also a stranded material, but it's very orderly. And this contrast between the very strong disorder we see in polymers and the, and the, the, the tendency to order that we see in hair has, has long been a challenge to understand. A polymer physicist could not understand how it's possible to comb hair. How do you mean? If you, it's, if you even think about trying to comb a random, completely random fiber assembly, it, it's very easy to convince yourself uh, you will get stuck in knots. But when you look at hair under an electron microscope, there is some very beautiful microsco microscopic structure. Hair has a, a, a surface cuticles which are very clearly oriented. They know which way is, is outwards from the root. Uh, they're designed to make it easy to comb the hair. They're designed also to migrate dirt out of the hair. Uh, and there may be more besides to understand about those. Craig Bennett and his colleagues took home the Neuroscience Prize. And what is it you guys won for? Well, in short, we won for a dead fish. Uh, the title of our paper was... Uh, what is the title of our paper? <laughs> Something in Atlantic salmon. Yeah, uh, inter interspecies perspective taking in the postmortem Atlantic salmon, an argument for multiple proper multiple comparisons correction. So what does that mean? <laughs> well, what we did is during uh, routine uh, MRI testing before we took a protocol and started running humans on it, uh, you run the scanner like you typically would, but you put a, typically an eight-inch sphere of mineral oil in called a phantom. But during that time, you could put anything else you want. So over time, my grad school advisor and I put a pumpkin in, a Cornish game hen in, and a full-length Atlantic salmon in. I want to emphasize here that this salmon was dead. Very, very dead. We later analyzed the data from the salmon, and using uh, an uncorrected statistical threshold, found that there was activity in the dead salmon's brain while we were scanning it. If you did have that hypothesis that... I think that dead fish can think and that their brains are actually active. And you went down to the scanner and scanned your dead salmon and saw these results, you'd have your hypothesis totally validated if you use that uncorrected threshold. That seems like that shouldn't happen. Exactly, it shouldn't. It came about just because of random chance and noise. It was a false positive. And using proper uh, correction thresholds, corrected thresholds rather, uh, that activity went away. So that was the real truth instead of our false positive. And our paper really was an argument in favor of using these proper corrections when you analyze fMRI data. Random statistical flukes like this are inevitable whenever there are huge amounts of data. George Wolford explains that there are lots of ways to make sure that they don't ruin the results of tests. So there are corrections that you can make uh, to, to limit the number of false positives. Uh, and a lot of people weren't using proper corrections in their imaging work. So we just used some corrections that other people had used and found significant activations in the salmon. But when you do one of these proper corrections that reduces the number of false positives, all of that activation went away. This apparent zombie fish had big implications on a lot of research. We estimated that about 30% of the papers published in a set of journals we looked at had used improper corrections. It's almost guaranteed 
that some of the findings in those studies were false positives, and they got through the system. These lessons are important for researchers in all corners of science. It, it isn't just neuroimaging. I mean, people that do gene expression, there's a lot of uh, techniques out there that generate thousands upon thousands of data points that they analyze. And in any of those, they have to be careful to try and reduce the probability of false positives. And I think since our paper and other papers have come out, there has been more attention to controlling in a serious way false positives. Science in the public interest using a dead fish. That's what the Ignobles are all about. That's all for this week's Physics Buzz podcast. You can find more of our podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening.